You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. I'm here today with some of our fantastic Changing Our World consultants, and today we are going to talk about some of the most commonly asked questions that we as fundraising consultants are asked quite frequently. And I'm sure that many of you out in the field who work in fundraising on a daily basis may be asked these same kinds of questions by your donors. So I've gathered a, a group of some of our best fundraisers at Changing Our World, and let me just take a moment and introduce them. First, I have Ray Witowski, Senior Managing Director at Changing Our World. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. Brandy Hollis. Brandy, you were just with us recently. Great to have you back on the podcast. Brandy, yeah. you're a senior director for Changing Our World. Thanks for having me back. Fantastic. And welcome, Diana Curran. Diana is a senior director for Changing Our World. Welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thanks, Jim. It's my pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So why don't we tackle first, what is the best time to fundraise? Brandy, do you want to take that one? Really, everything your organization does should work hand in hand. The mission should work hand in hand with your fundraising plan. And this should be weaved into your strategic plan, all your tactics, your marketing. It really needs to be one cohesive plan and all work together. And it should be done year round. Uh, Year end fundraising, while people might give most of their gifts from October to December, Really, you should be planning that year-round. Begin, you know, January begins. You get a brief, brief breather. We don't get breathers in development right, and stewardship, exactly. mm-hmm. and you move forward with that plan and uh, sequentially, by month by month, develop what that is, so that you don't just all of a sudden have this. Oh, here's here we got to raise money at year end. That you have a really cohesive strategy, and you will see the returns. And just to follow up on Brandy's point about the fact that fundraising does take. It's, it's a long-term process, as it should be, because you're dealing with a true moves management process, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on. But I think the fact that you're in touch with your donors, you know, from an initial cultivation, engagement standpoint, sometimes, you know, that initial engagement, that initial conversation may take months to actually convert to an actual gift. So having the opportunity of being in that mindset of fundraising takes a number of steps throughout a year, maybe even more. So I think it's always a good time to be fundraising because there's just all different elements working at different different points and different uh, channels, you know, based on uh, donor uh reaction, donor behavior, and reacting to that um, accordingly. And I think it also depends on uh, the schedule for your nonprofit, right? So if you have a big, uh, if you kick off your annual fund in the fall, let's say, you know, that's the best time, obviously, you're, you're, you're geared towards annual fund. There's a lot of activity if you're doing a major gift portion for that ma- for the annual fund versus a direct mail appeal. If you have, I work with nonprofits that have big events in the fall versus big events in the spring, right? So it also kind of depends on what your development calendar is and the best time that you can free up staff uh, to maybe do some of those extra things like major donor visits or stewardship visits or prospecting or research to bring new people to the table. You know, that's a great point. You really do want to look at what else is going on, especially if you're in a special events nonprofit, because if you're bringing people into your pipeline and developing those relationships, you want to have the time to really invest in those and make that work and not be something that you're throwing together an event and then throwing together an annual campaign and not marrying the two together. Yep. 
So I think to Brandy's point, it's really important that you have a really clear marketing strategy and communication channel so that there's no overlap for, you know, those folks who you might be approaching for a major gift versus a direct mail appeal that might be going out for the annual fund. So being able to set up almost like a marketing calendar with who is going to do what and when so that there is no overlap with those communications is really going to be key to your yielding the, the best results come into the year. Great, great point, Diana. So that kind of leads into the next question. How can I stop marketing and communications from overlapping with my, with my appeals? I think it really starts from an internal standpoint in any institution or organization where development and advancement and communications are literally having the you know dialogue together as a team where versus a silo mentality where marketing communications has a certain role and function and then development and advancement has its role it both entities among others are all working for the greater good as they should be and oftentimes organizations fall into a trap where um, you know, marketing communications might be more of a priority for a certain uh, certain event or uh, a certain stage of an organization's um, uh, annual uh, programming. At the same time, it's really, really key for that concerted, um, ongoing dialogue to be happening internally so that way Marketing communications is helping to support advancement and vice versa. Uh, it can't be on just um, silo tracks. Ray, you make several good points with that. I think it really does come down to leadership. It comes down to leadership of the organization, the departments, and also your governing board, that everyone's educated and working together as a team. And we all have our stories of where things went really well and our stories of where the departments did not work well together. And it really comes down to, you know, those, those two leaders and, and the organization leader, if that's your structure to have the two VPs and a CEO, really have to get on board and really become a team and put those team strategies together and, you know, just put the egos aside and do the good work. We talk about it at Change Our World very much uh, from a an alignment standpoint. We use that word um, often and, it, it, and it's important because it's strategic alignment. Brandy talked about it earlier in terms of when it's the right time to fundraise or not, where you you need the resources, financially, human, and otherwise, to support an organization's strategic plan. So all of the entities, again, development, advancement, communications, and even with educational institutions, they're, they're dealing with recruitment. So all those three entities are all working together in support of that institution's strategic plan and driving it forward. Good. Next question. How do I not only find more donors, but more donors that are the right fit for my organization? So I think a lot of this comes from research, right? Uh, to have that prospect research uh, tool in place and finding that time, whether it's uh, training the administrative assistant or training the database person or finding the time yourself to, uh, to look at your donors and look at what they have given to in the past. Now, there's tools like GuideStar. There's tools like DonorSearch. There's a variety of different tools in which you can screen folks. I also think there's nothing better than sitting down and having a conversation uh, with your existing donors about what their interests are, right? right. And finding out you know, where their affinities are, what they're most interested in investing in, um, and, and really understanding what's important to them. 
Jim, to your point, there, there are a number of tools out there, and they're all very, um, very valuable in terms of looking at research and data and what does the donor prospect pool look like. And th those tools help to define, very importantly, capacity in one level, right? This, this donor, we look at um, just in terms of you know, real estate properties, past giving, the amount of gifts that this uh, donor is, is, is given in the past. And again, you start looking at the capacity of giving even more. Then it becomes the development director's important job and part of that engagement is to really help strengthen the inclination of donors to want to give to his or her organization. So again, capacity first, inclination second. Conversion would be, I guess, the third once the gift is made. Sure. But there are, I think the more data that a development officer can have at his or her um, uh, desk, and there's, again, different tools may work for different organizations, but I think that important thing, as much as you can know about your donor on a personal level, is key because that drives the conversation, that drives the engagement, and that helps to keep the donor, you know, donor's interest at heart, knowing that that organization is doing something that that particular donor has um, of, is of particular value or interest to them. So, Ray, I think you touched on a lot of points there when you're talking about capacity. And I think one of the things that we also need to take a look at is engagement, right? So you might have somebody who is really interested in your organization. They might be interested in volunteering with your organization, but they might not yet have contributed a gift to your, you know, your nonprofit or your school or your parish. And I think we need to kind of take a look at that and think about how can we cultivate that relationship? How can we get a deeper sense of what's important to that person that's going to connect them with our mission? And then I think it becomes about a matter of, of storytelling, right? So coming up with some of those stories, those impact statements um, that are really going to hit the heart, you know, and, and really make the philanthropic decision of that particular person meaningful, where they feel like they are actually creating real change or allowing somebody to have an opportunity that they wouldn't ordinarily have or that they're solving some kind of problem, right? So I think we need to take a look at that as, as well and really start building those relationships. That's a great point, Diana. And Jim, you started out the podcast so wonderfully talking about the art and science of fundraising. And it really is true. We have, uh, we can analyze capacity and we have to be so data driven, yet it really does come down to human relationships. And um, I think it's really important that we don't get in a mindset or as development directors, it can get stuck in a rut to think, I just need new donors. I need more new donors. And that can't be your only strategy. Of course, you want to build new relationships and get in front of new people, but you need to continue to steward your other people, which makes our role really, really challenging. So here's a question that we get asked all the time, especially when we do capital campaigns or when we're helping a group to increase their annual fund. And that is, why do I have to use a specific ask amount in the letter? Anybody want to take a crack at that one? Diana? Well, I think, first of all, people are not going to know how much to give. They're not going to know how much they need to contribute in order for you as an organization to help create the change that you need to change or the problem you need to solve. 
So I know that in, in experiments that have been done in the past, when you, for example, present a pledge card, you know, a reply device, and you allow people to, you know, just make an arbitrary donation, sort of like a blank line, they are more likely not to give or to give at a level than as if you were to give them a pre-populated gift string. So for example, if you ask somebody to donate a $2 bonus to the charity of their choice and you didn't give them an option, they would be less likely to give. If you gave them an option of, you know, I'd like to contribute $1, $2, or $3, or not at all, the the studies have shown that you can actually um, reduce the rate of refusal anywhere from 14 to 28 percent. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we have a goal and ask amounts are based mostly on past giving history using a lot of, you know, data behind it and a lot of well screening information in our, in our case. Um, and so that's a, that's, it's not an arbitrary figure. Do you know what I mean? It's an yeah. actually data-driven calculation that's going to make the, the biggest impact. So that's one reason People can't give what you don't ask for. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't ask, you don't give. You have to ask for the order. We're also a consumer-driven society that we really do. We look, look at price tags. We're always aware of what the price point is. And if you don't give people a starting point, I think that's just a natural, a natural thing that makes people feel comfortable and know where to start. And then, you know, you don't want to, you want people to aim high. Ray, do you want to contribute anything on that one? Well, this specific ask topic uh, that often comes up you know quite a bit even when we're doing initial feasibility studies right as well when we're you know talking with donors who have given to an organization and we know what they've given in the past and we start to you know look at you know what is it going to take for potentially that gift to be increased and i think you know donors in some respects might be uh maybe intimidated by an amount that's higher than what they've given historically. But at the same point, the organization believes in this particular donor and, you know, and, and has made a case for how impactful this donor's gift is going to be amongst others. And in order for the organization to achieve a particular goal, it's going to take, you know, more mm -hmm. often. And then yeah. what has been historically. So I think the ask amount, again, when it's done diplomatically and appropriately, um, it, 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 it's informative for the organization, but it's also informative for the donor to realize that we need more of those like you right. to contribute. I love this question because we get it so often. I've, I've gotten it from the perspective of the annual fund and I've gotten a perspective of, of capital campaign. And, uh, and I think that when you set the bar for people, when you, when you set out an expectation, you raise their expectations to a certain degree. I used to work for a diocese where uh, we doubled the average gift over the course of about nine years. When I came in, it was about $100 per family. And by the end of about nine years, it was $200 per family. Now, there was a lot of other activities that went with that. There was good communication. There was a major gift effort that was put in place with that uh, annual fund. But always we would ask people for a specific amount. If you, asked, if you gave me $100 last year for the, for the annual fund, I'd ask you to consider a gift of $125. If you gave me $5,000 this year, I might ask you for $5,500 to 6,000 next year. I would just slowly inch people up every year. 
And I found that with a number of donors, they actually would look for that number and try to hit that number if they could. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one year I remember especially where uh, I had been doing the annual fund for a while and we had been doing this ask for a while, this personal ask. People got in the habit of of, of seeing that number. And then one year we decided, and it was shortly around the recession, 08, 09, we decided to ask people to stretch. So we didn't just give them one number, we gave them three numbers. And we gave them the normal number. Then we said, but if you really want to help us, maybe you'd consider <laughs> a, a, a amount num- B. And if you really feel blessed and would like to help us out, you know, try, you know, this would be stretch amount C. And so we asked them to really push themselves. And we were surprised how many people actually hit amount number three versus amount number one. And it really jumped up our numbers in a big way. But I think there's a, there's a strong sense of flattery that yeah. you're asking a donor to, because you, you know, we know you can do it because yeah. you have the data kind of support the sure. facts because you know the, the, the capacity standpoint. But I think donors are like, you know, I'm flattered the fact that you thought I could make it a, a gift amount of that, of that level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now the question becomes, will, you know, will they? Will they be able to do that? <laughs> yeah, sure. And they have to go home and in a faith-based setting, in a Catholic setting, you know, they go home and pray about it and talk with their spouse sure. or talk with their family members. But yeah, it, 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 we'd like it to be a decision and not just something they automatically write the check for, right? We, right. we hope that they would consider making a sacrifice. And those, that's the kind of, I think that stewardship language can really be helpful, especially when you're talking with uh, Catholic donors to understand that, you know, everything we give should be a sacrifice. It's a gift back to God. And, and it should be prayerful. It should be proportionate to how we've been blessed by God, but also it should be some kind of a sacrifice, right? It shouldn't just be whatever we have. It shouldn't just be those, the, the, whatever we can, whatever's left in our pocket, I should say. If your donor isn't flattered by the ask amount, they will definitely see that you have unshakable confidence in the mission of your organization and the leadership of your organization to make a specific ask request. I think that's true. And, and you know, so we talked about annual fund side of things. And, and then, of course, on the major gift side of things, it can be even more impactful to ask for a specific amount, right? And we do that in our capital campaigns. And we certainly do that in the leadership portion of the, ca- of, of the capital campaign. And um, you know, in some cases, I've been at, at asks where you're asking the donor for a seven-figure gift or even sometimes a, a six-figure gift, and sometimes you might miscalculate. They might not have either that affinity or that ability because uh, sometimes research lets us down. But other times, they'll surprise you, and they'll, uh, they'll give twice as much. Or uh, in some of the recent asks that I've been a part of, uh, they actually said you didn't ask for enough, right? Oh. And we, th- and we were afraid to ask for the amount we were, we were going to ask for. And um, so I, I always feel like you should just be bold and keep asking. And, um, you know, somebody that we're working with right now has a wonderful way of putting it. You know, my job is to ask. Your job is to discern, right? Yeah. And, uh, and go home and pray about that. So we are the askers. And I think we have to keep asking. That's our role. So what is the, the best way to steward a donor? And how important is kind of a donor recognition program? You, we all uh, have heard, you know, you have to thank donors seven times, right, between the times that you add. You, they make the gift. You're supposed to thank them seven times before you make the next request or seven times in a year. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, how often should you steward a donor? I mean, I don't think you can ever say thank you enough, right? Right. But I think that you know, it's important the channels that you use to steward a donor. So for example, you know, if somebody makes a gift to 
you know, the capital campaign. Maybe they're going to receive, depending on their gift level, maybe they'll receive a signed thank you letter from the bishop. Maybe then after that, they would receive one from their pastor as well. But then if that particular person, uh, maybe they made their gift and it was a very large major gift, maybe they decided to give online, then they should also receive an email thanking them and an email acknowledgement because I think it's really important, especially in today's day and age, to honor the channel that the donor prefers right. to give. Right. So I think being able to thank them, but thank them in a, a variety of different ways um, is really important and is really key. Diana, you make a very good point about just the channels of the way the donor thank you and recognition takes place. And in conversations that I've had with donors is you actually get ideas and suggestions from the donors from, just from the standpoint of how they prefer to be recognized. And some could be, you know, very simple. You know, it's a thank you letter, um, but, you know, or it could be maybe something a little bit more personal. Uh, personalized uh, in, in some cases, but in the conversations that I've had, it's, you know, donors will say, you know, I haven't, I haven't given to the organization because the last time I gave, I really wasn't recognized for it. And that's, you know, again, you start picking up ideas where as a fundraiser goes forward in a new initiative, keeping, you know, pat, those past behaviors, maybe some missteps and how donors were not, you know, appropriately recognized you can, you know, make up for it in, in, in more, you know, just by keeping your eye on and listening to what donors are telling you from all the while, you know, spe you know making sure that what you do is reflective of, of the input that they've given you along the way. And I think, too, right to your point, think about the resources that you might have internally. So, for example, if it's a school and you're doing a fundraiser at a school, is there a way you know, to pull some of the, the kids together and just have them, you know, teenagers making thank you calls from their cell phones, you know, pull together a little pizza party and have a, a stewardship, a thank-a-thon phone call event for them because then the students are showing their gratitude and then the, you know, the person who has made that gift is getting a real connection to the, you know, to the school or to that child that they've made a difference you know, in their lives somehow. So making that connection a real meaningful connection, I think is really important too. And, and utilizing what you have. I think that your, your point about like using a, a special event such as an educational institution who has donors who are setting up very uh, specific scholarships for incoming students, maybe students who are first generation, maybe students who just do not have the ability to afford uh, an education, and these scholarships help to um, make that happen. And these institutions will have a special donor recognition event where the students will actually get up and tell their story about how that scholarship made such a difference in his or her life that without it, they couldn't be where they are today. And that emotive type of experience and a recognition for donors to sit in a room and actually see and hear the impact that their gift made from a scholarship standpoint, you can't put a price tag on that. It's, it's an amazing moment and one that really shows how much not only the students but the college or university or any organization for that matter believe in 
what the donors have done and those that are impacted by it are communicating that as well. Ray, you brought that back beautifully to impact. That donors want to see lives changed, lives impacted. They want to see the world made a better place. That's what they want to see. And it's incredibly time intensive and a lot of work to individualize those thank yous, but it's so important. I remember uh, we, gave, we always give to our kids elementary school. Several times they've done a thank-a-thon in the spring with the kids. And I'll get a call from an eighth grader on my cell phone. Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Friend, for your gift to our annual fund. It can make such an impact, you know, and what a treat to get that, you know, call from one of the students that hopefully your gift made an impact on. So how important is online giving? I mean, I think online giving is important. I think that communication and appeal strategies these days definitely need to take a multi-channeled approach. And say, for example, you're going to send out, you know, a direct mail appeal, an annual appeal in the fall. I think that you need to follow up with those folks, not only again with a secondary appeal letter, but also through, you know, an email appeal um, and with a direct link to a giving page. I think that when you do construct your giving page, you have to be very mindful that it is um, easy to use, that it's mobile responsive, that there's not too many action steps that you know people have to click through. So when you're developing that, thinking about what type of data you want to capture so that you can um, do so in a way that is efficient, useful to the organization, but is very easy on the user end. So make sure that you test it and test it from multiple devices. You know, an iPhone is going to respond differently than a Samsung is going to respond. It's going to respond differently on tablets than it is a, a laptop. So I think it's really important to, to use different, you know, emails and um, di digital form formats for fundraising, but you need to test it and, and make it, sure it's easy. Absolutely, Diana. And I think one of the aspects, too, is I think donors expect the fact that they want to be able to give in, in that manner, especially the younger generation, younger uh, donor generations that uh, organizations and institutions are looking to engage and uh, become more of become more involved in uh, fundraising for, for example, their alma mater. And they're giving, you know, giving Tuesdays and things of that sort, those special events are happening right on their mobile phone. The fact that the younger generation are using their mobile devices uh, on such a regular basis, that that's another element, another manner for them to be able to donate to an organization at the moment that they so choose. So if that online uh, manner wasn't uh, available, you know, donors would be questioning it. I think it's a great and inexpensive way for organizations to follow up as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing, and Diana alluded to it, is you want to make sure that donate now button is not buried. That people, if they are impulsive and want to donate right away, that they can find that quickly on your website and be able to make that donation. And the other point to that is, is just using the different online channels. I'm not an expert, but it's not just website giving now. There's also giving on Facebook and there's other kind of collective giving mechanisms that can, can really help organizations and really bring people into the fold. And to Brandy's point, you know, when you're, when you're looking at setting up a donate button, there are certain things that you might want to do. You might want to change the color of it to see does it actually drive and increase results. So there's different, you know, elements of testing that you're going to want to go through. And it's almost like the psychology of color. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. What worked, what didn't, yeah. what changes we have to make. So uh, one of our last questions, how important are special events and how can I leverage my special events? 
How can I best leverage my special event? Anybody? Brandy? Special events. Special events are necessary, but they are a lot of work. I have a look on my face right now, and I'm sure you know, you're all thinking why. It's so important to introduce people to your organization and to use or- events as fund- friend raisers and fundraisers, but also you don't want to solely focus on the friendship making and have an event not help contribute to your mission. That can be a really detrimental thing to your donors if they find out that they came to this great event and they feel like all this money was raised and later on feel, feel that you're, you know, you didn't make a great margin. Even though your intention may have been friend raising and bringing new people in, people still want to see that mission supported. So you have to really balance those things and events are so, so time intensive. So you really do have to figure out how can your major giving program lead your organization rather than events, but use both as you need. Well, they're very, very time intensive, you know, and I think, uh, Whenever you're evaluating your development efforts for the, during the course of the year, you have to look, how many hours did I put into this special event mm-hmm. and what was the return on that investment? You know, and, and like you're saying, I mean, I think sometimes it's not just uh, the fact that you raised X number of dollars at this event, it's who attended that event. Right. You know, and to make note that they attended that event in your, in your database and, and follow up. You know, the follow up can be much more important than the few dollars you may have made on that event. Events are important, though. I mean, they certainly can be used to celebrate uh, the identity of an organization. They can be used to leverage bringing new friends into the organization. Uh, certainly, in some cases, they can raise a whole lot of money. And some, some places uh, do it extremely well, and others knock themselves out for you know, relatively few dollars. I, I think it's important for any board member or any development director or president or, or uh, executive director of a nonprofit to really evaluate how much time is my staff spending on these special events? What's the return on an investment? Uh, is there a different way that we could do this? Is the special event even at the right time of the year? You know, we sometimes we've I've had or organizations I've worked with that may, they do their special events in the fall, and for some that makes a lot of sense, but for others it might not because it might be getting in the way or competing with that annual fund that may be launching at that exact same time. Uh, and now I've got two fundraising things going on, two fundraising programs going on in my organization that are competing with competing one another. With and that just doesn't make any sense. Brandy? And, and they're exhausting your staff at the same time, right. if, if, especially if you're a small shop. Yeah. So you really have to look at that carefully. And yes, that your staff will be burning the candle at both ends. The other thing I think it's important to recognize is successful fundraising events are not done on the backs of staff. They are done with collaboration of volunteers in the community and your donors. So if you have a staff-only driven event, you're probably not raising a lot of money. It may be where you need to start to start building relationships and bringing friends into the fold. But if you're still doing that event and having the staff drive the fundraising, you really need to question your model and your strategy and when it's time to pivot and uh, either do something different or else bring the community in to help you raise the money. Right. And I think the special event topic goes back to what we were talking about initially in terms of what is the right time for fundraiser. Uh, and we talked about the fact that fundraising needs to be, a, you know, very much a kind of a, in simplistic terms, an annual, you know, stage number of activities that are happening. And I think some organizations fall in the trap of relying on a particular special event for the majority of the dollars that they've raised. Uh, colleges and universities, you know, rely on special tournaments and alumni events and so on and so forth. But at the same time, those events should be supplementing other fundraising activities as opposed to, re, you know, banking on this one event. 
uh, for the the majority or the greater percentage of what they bring in from a, a philanthropic standpoint. All right, guys. Uh, last question of our podcast today: uh, Why do people give? Let's get back to basics. Why do people give? Anybody want to start? From my experience in talking with donors and looking at data um, that Change Our World has done and other third-party data, and I think historically donors gave because it made them feel good. They had a connection with an organization or an institution, and it came down to, you know, it was the right thing to do. And I think over time, we talked about it a few moments ago, donors want to see the impact that the gift that they're going to make is going to have on a particular organization to a point where it becomes an investment on their part and they want to see the return on that investment. Um, So they're they're not giving simply out of a uh, a feeling it's there is a particular need that this organization has and this donor's contribution will make a tangible impact. And donors want to see that. They want to understand how their money is going to be used uh, on particular donations, whether it be restricted or unrestricted. But I think that aspect of, yes, they're going to feel good by giving, but I think one of the key things is how is their money going to be used? And when they have a clear answer to that and a clear example, whether it be from the case for support initially of which they began to embrace, all of that combined, I think the the, the point being is they want to see an impact. They want to know what their contribution is going to do. It's because people care. That's why they really give. It may be because they care about the case or they care about the mission or somebody that's been touched by the organization, Uh, but it also might be because they care of about what the peer that asked them for the donation thinks of them. So I think it really does come back to that care and it's inspiring people through the mission and also through different relationships. I, I think to, to echo Ray's point, people give because they believe that your organization can create the kind of impact that they want to see in their community. They believe that you have the ability, the capacity, the spirit, if you will, to really make a difference. And you can, as an organization, leverage that passion, you know, through courageous leadership to help elevate your fundraising uh, performance and, you know, turn that into increased participation or increased dollars to help, you know, propel your mission forward. I do believe it is a heart-centric activity. I really do. Well, I think you you all make some uh, some really good points here. I uh, I think in this climate, especially since the tax laws have changed, you really have to uh, pay attention to uh, the income level and what tax bracket they might be in, and you have to pay attention to the kinds of write offs that they might be looking for, and uh, and it's it's almost impossible to know uh, that kind of background information. But certainly, I I agree with everything you're saying, especially uh, you, Diana. It really is a it, it's a, an affair of the heart, right? It, it's really something that. It tugs at the heartstrings, and all of us are, I think, charged to tell great stories and to connect our donors with the mission, and I think that's why they come back each year to give. I just want to thank all of you for being a part of this uh, conversation tonight. I hope that you'll come back, and uh, we'll do it again sometime, but uh, thank you, Diana. Thank you, Brandy, and thank you, Ray, for being on the podcast tonight. I think it was some great discussion. It's always great to be with you, Jen. Appreciate it.
This week, we are at the International Catholic Stewardship Conference in Chicago, and I hope that you will stop by and see myself, Anna Vallez, or Tom Farrell by our booth sometime in Chicago uh, at the Sheraton. We're looking forward to seeing many of our friends. I hope that you will send in a comment, maybe like, reply, or share a podcast. We appreciate all of our support from all of our listeners throughout the course of the week. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit our website at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Have a great week. Take care, and God bless.